Welcome to episode 38 of the Working Well podcast, the show that explores the rapidly changing landscape of work and well-being. Each episode, we dive into the hottest topics in leadership, employee well-being, and the future of work. I'm your host, Tim Boris. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with psychological safety expert, Stefan Wiedner, who's the founder of three thriving learning and development companies. We're gonna shine a spotlight on psychological safety in the workplace, and the challenges that leaders, employees, and companies face each day. Before we dive in, here's a bit more about Stefan. Stefan Wiedner is a psychological safety expert whose career has focused on developing sustainable, high-performance leaders, teams, and organizations. His passion for unleashing the collective potential of people has led him to co-found Numi.com, the world's largest network of independent life coaches, Skillsetter.com, the deliberate practice platform for interpersonal skills, and Zerango.com, the psychological safety training experts. Stefan has been a guest speaker at many business events and podcasts. His writing has been featured in Forbes, Entrepreneur, and other popular publications. Stefan, great to have you on the show. How's the new year going for you? Tim, thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, the new year 2023 has been fantastic so far. I really started it off with a bang um, on New Year's Day, traveled to the Canadian Rockies and uh, did some skiing in Banff, Lake Louise, that that whole area. got some crisp blue skies with amazing views. So uh, 2023 started off with a bang. It was awesome. Fantastic. We were probably there at the same time because I every Thursday through Sunday I'm in the in the mountains in Banff. So awesome. Yeah, yeah it was it was bitterly cold, but uh, the view <laughs> the views were outstanding. Excellent. Now today we're talking a lot about uh, psychological safety, and we hear that term in all the media. You know, it's a hot button for HR departments everywhere. How do you define psychological safety? Yeah, I define psychological safety as pretty simply the courage to speak up and the confidence to know you'll be heard. So when we deliver training to leaders and managers and so on, that's our mantra. We want to drill that in. You're creating your responsibility as a leader or manager is to create an environment where the folks around you have the courage to speak up and the confidence to know that when they do speak up, they'll be heard. And we need to make an important distinction there, Tim, in that being heard doesn't mean agreement. So I don't have to agree with you, but I need to seek to make sure I understand your perspective and where you're coming from. And so that's our working definition of psychological safety. Uh, I may want to mention for those who are listening that there's a uh, another definition provided by Amy Emmonson. So she's really the, uh, the key thought leader in this space. Uh, she's a Harvard professor and does uh, has done research for 25 plus years on this topic. And her definition of psychological safety is that it's a belief that within your work environment, it's safe to speak up, say what's on your mind, express concerns, even admit mistakes without any fear of reprimand. So there's no kind of negative consequences to you speaking up. And um, And what that means is not necessarily that you might get fired, but uh, you, we could probably all relate to being in a classroom and not wanting to stick your hand up to ask that question because you might want you don't want to come across as being that annoying kid that asks all the questions or someone you don't want to come across as stupid or you don't want to come across as someone who's maybe oppositional. 
So these are the types of consequences that we're concerned about when we speak up or don't speak up. Absolutely. And to me, that seems to come back to a lot to the overall corporate culture, which I guess would say is created by a leadership mindset and actions. Uh, how do you see that fitting in with the work you do? Yeah, I agree. I think I think most people appreciate corporate culture. They think, okay, <clears throat> I can tell this company has a good cor- corporate culture, that company doesn't. And yet it's a little bit amorphous. It's kind of hard to change or <laughs> how do you shape corporate culture? And so I see corporate culture as kind of like a weather map. If you think of a map of North America or country, um, there's going to be hot spots, cold spots, you know, snow over here, rain over there. And um, and so I look at culture a little bit like that. It's this large amorphous thing, whereas psychological safety, it really is a team-based construct. So you as a member of a team or a member of an organization might be in two or three teams, right? You might head up the marketing department, but then also be part of some sort of management team, or uh, you might also integrate with the sales team, et cetera. So in those different teams, you might feel a different sense of psychological safety based on the individuals there, based on your experiences in those different teams, your perceived level of competence in whatever uh, uh, arena each of those teams is dealing with. So that's how I see the connection between psychological safety and and culture, because ultimately, like psychological safety is the weather in one area. It's the temperature you're feeling in the city kind of thing compared to the broader uh, heat map or the broader weather map across a large geographic area. Okay, I like that. I haven't heard that analogy before, and uh, I, I think it's it's great. And yeah, because you could be in some companies or like Antarctica for the <laughs> for the the, the weather, uh, but then you might have uh, one leader that creates a hot spot in terms of um, psychological safety, and the people in that team feel free to speak up and they they feel accepted and able to contribute their best. Whereas overall, the corporate culture may not be that way. And vice versa, you can have, you know, a very open, great corporate culture with a leader who's creating a unsafe environment for, for their team. And uh, how, so that when we think about leadership skills, how does it really come back to training and development? Well, I put it this way, because I think you're touching on some of the key factors there, Tim, you're talking about creating an environment where people can speak up or they feel safe to and and so uh, those are the skills we're looking at. Like, what are the skills that a leader possesses to be able to foster psychological safety, to be able to create an environment where those who are around them feel heard, they feel appreciated, they feel like they can they can even oppose the leader and say, I think that's a terrible idea. And here's why. You want that, right? You want those oppositional points of view. Um, and and I, uh, what our research and our uh work is pointing to are a couple key factors of those leaders. One is empathy. You need to be able to be at least willing to put yourself in someone else's shoes to sort of see the world through their perspective. So we think empathy is a really key ingredient to a manager being able to foster psychological safety. And then the other one, which is maybe a little less um, appreciated is 
interpersonal, what we call interpersonal responsiveness. What that is, is being attuned to uh, any sort of conflict that might be occurring and then being able to address it head on. So rather than sweeping it under the rug or pretending like we're all just friends here, being able to say, hey, I'm noticing you you look a little bit upset or what's going on. Um, I'm noticing you two are seem to be quarreling. Is there something we can do to intervene here? You know, being able to proactively approach any conflict is really key, not just the conflict between you, the leader and a member of the team, but also other members of the team. Um, and being able to be that facilitator that will make sure that the team is working well together. I think those are the key ingredients. And, and those are skills that we can assess and we can also train them. Um, I think so often we think of leadership skills as, you know, you just have them or you don't. And I think that's that's a fallacy because um, like anything, we think you can learn skills if you practice them correctly. Absolutely. And yeah, I've had conversations with uh, previous guests and professionals and in the sense of uh, a lot of that stems from that was a great man theory of, uh, of leadership is like, yeah, leaders are born, not made. And you just have to have these in, innate qualities and you can step into this leadership role. And yeah, there, we see so many leaders put into positions and they're set up to fail because they have been promoted due to a maybe a great technical skills. They've produced great results as a subject matter expert. And then they get put into a leadership role where they have to lead and inspire a team and communicate effectively with that. And that's not their skill set. And so I guess from the empathy, empathy side, how do you, you know, quantify that and, and, and measure those, those types of what are traditionally, I guess, considered soft skills? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like to think that that's a bit of a mislabel, right. To call them soft skills, because we think there are hard skills. They, they can be assessed and they can be learned. So the way that we do that, this is um, we're, we're really stealing, if you will, from uh, some work that was done in the world of counseling. So a uh, professor by the name of Tim Anderson, he did some research uh, looking at counselors and trying to assess counselors for their interpersonal skills. And of course, counseling is uh, it's a profession where that's what you do all day, every day, right? Is <laughs> you work on interpersonal skills to build a relationship with someone to have that person achieve better outcomes for their lives, whatever outcomes those are, right? And, and so, you know, on one hand, a business leader is not at all a counselor, but on the other hand, there's some parallels that are really interesting there because as a as a counselor, you're trying to produce better outcomes. Well, what do you think a leader is trying to do? <laughs> trying to produce better outcomes with a team. And so um, what they were able to do, what Tim Anderson and his, his people were able to do is assess these skills by having counselors respond to videos of challenging moments in counseling. So they they have a large body of recorded sessions and they found some uh, dialogue that they knew this was this is a particularly challenging moment uh, in counseling. So then they had actors uh, acting those scenes out and then they they showed people these clips and said, okay, now respond. And when they responded, they're able to codify their responses to look for markers that show that, okay, yeah, they're demonstrating empathy there. They're demonstrating uh, interpersonal responsiveness. 
and they're able to score each of the individuals. And what they found is those scores correlated with client outcomes years later. So it's predictive how well these folks were able to respond to these challenging stimuli uh, was predictive years later. And you know, if you unpack that, that's pretty fascinating. That's fascinating for me because you take roughly, say, nine minutes or eight minutes of recorded video, and that's supposed to predict how someone else, someone's going to perform years down the road. And what's interesting about that is it's presenting people challenging moments, right? Think of yourself as a manager. As a manager, it's easy to be a manager when things are going well, everyone's getting along, you're hitting your results. But then when you throw in a curveball and maybe personalities clash a little bit more, or, or there's market conditions that are causing the business to struggle a little bit more. That's when it gets real. That's when your leadership skills are really put to the test. And so that's what that's how we're assessing people's skills is by throwing at them these engineered moments in a team that are challenging and seeing how they respond and then assessing folks uh, based on that. That's awesome. I love that. And yeah, you're right. The counseling fields, that's what they do. And what needs to change in corporations to better set leaders up for those types of hard skills, we'll call them now. Yeah. Hard skills. Thanks, Tim. Uh, well, I see there's a, the big problem that I see, and maybe, uh, you know, I'd love to hear your perspective on it, is that Ultimately, uh, you pointed to the fact that um, we can go to school to learn how to be an engineer. You can go to school to learn how to manage books, you know, the finances of a business, et cetera. And I don't know that there's a really great skill or great school for learning how to be a leader or a manager. Like, I, I just don't know that that formal education system exists. So most people get thrown into a leadership or a management role without any um, significant formal training. And so that's where we'd like to maybe change, uh, the script a little bit. And for example, if I said, you can't learn how to play the piano from reading a book, that's obvious. It's obvious why you can't learn to play the piano by reading a book. And yet when you browse the, <laughs> the bookshelves, uh, especially in the, um, you know, if you go through the airport ever, <laughs> there's always all sorts of leadership books and they're great. I don't get me wrong. It's not that a book on piano playing can't help you become a piano player, but that's not the, that's not the whole story. There needs to be a certain amount of practice and, and, and deliberate practice, in fact, to make sure that you're working on those skills to, to improve. Did that answer the question? Cause I, I've kind of gone off rambling. I'm not, not sure that I remember what the question was, Tim, to be honest. Um, yeah. Like what can, what can leader or leaders and companies do? And yeah, I agree there, there aren't, it's not really taught in the formal education aspect. There are, you know, I guess master's degrees in leadership now and things like that, that you can go back and do. Uh, and I, I think there are a lot of third-party companies offering leadership training. What I've what I've seen from from my experience is that a, you know I, I work with lots of different companies, and the leadership teams or the um, executive team will go and they'll do a a one-day course or even a week-long course, and then they go back to doing what they're doing, and then they're like, oh, it's time for another training again, and 
you know, a couple quarters later, they go back out for another learning and development. And I think it's something like 90% of the, the learning that happens during those sessions gets forgotten within 48 hours. <laughs> wow. I know and it's true. It, it's a massive drop off in terms of knowledge. And so the, what I feel is missing in a lot of companies is the filling that knowledge gap. Like they do companies do the training. They spend billions of dollars every year nationwide doing training for leadership and teams yet there's no follow-up the long tail is missing like how are we implementing and and measuring the application of that knowledge over time to create leadership change and behavior change and cultural change in the organization and that's something that i feel is missing and yeah I, I love how you articulated it there because I think there's a key distinction that we need to make because you said 90% of the knowledge is lost after 48 hours, which, wow, crazy. And um, But there's a core fundamental belief, which is that we think that leadership is about knowledge acquisition. And that's that's like, you can tell me how to hit a fastball all day, every day. I'm still not going to be able to hit a fastball because I suck at baseball. <laughs> I have not practiced, right? So knowledge is not enough. Um, and that's partly what I meant by uh, you can't learn to play the piano from a book because a book provides knowledge and yeah. knowledge is not enough. There needs to be practice. There needs to be, you know, rehearse over and over again so that when you do find yourself in a challenging moment, in a team meeting, you know how to respond. You know a, a good, effective means for replying. Because that's exactly how sports work, right? What do you do during practice? You learn how to dribble with your right hand. You learn how to dribble with your left hand. You learn how to, uh, you know, whatever sport it is you're playing. Uh, you break down the skills into it, their individual components. And then in a game, that's when you have to really use your lateral thinking to figure out when do I use the right skills, right? And the really masterful players can uh, really use, um, you know, the most creative new skills in that moment, right? Uh, you know, the Michael Jordans of the world. It's like, wow, how did he do that? That's crazy. But the good athletes can practice and rehearse and rehearse and practice so that in a game, it just, it's instinctual. They just, they just react, and that's what we want to see for leaders is that when there are challenging moments, hey, I've been here, done this before, seen this before. I know exactly how to respond. Yeah. Well, and and even if they haven't been there and been in that situation before, they at least have a knowledge base and the psychological safety to know that they can make a mistake and have that genuine conversation and learn from it. Mm. Learning happens in in those situations. Whereas I, I don't feel that that is the case in a lot of companies is that people, a lot of leaders are scared to make mistakes. They're like, I'm going to get fired. I'm going to get reprimanded. Uh, and they're, they're not comfortable, first of all, admitting that they don't have the answer and that they might need some help or time to learn how to do this. They're expected to step into a role and know what they're doing. In a lot of companies, not every company. I agree. Yeah, I, I think that is uh, uh, fairly pervasive. And I also see it among leaders, even if it's not that 
their company seems to be imposing it on them, but they have this internal belief. Oh, now that I'm the manager, I have to have all the answers. That's why they're promoting me to this position, right? I need, I need to have all the answers. And so we trade off um, that need to have all the answers with with vulnerability, because I think that's what you're pointing to. To be able to admit a mistake or admit that I don't have the answer here is a form of vulnerability. You need to be able to be comfortable to do that. And um, and that won't happen unless you're feeling some degree of psychological safety. Yeah. Yeah. Or uh, such immense self-confidence that you don't really care about what the environment is. and And that's, I think, pretty rare as well. Yeah, I think so. And you know, w- what that's pointing to is is as a leader, we need to set the stage, right? We need to uh model the behavior we want to see in folks. And if you want to create an environment where people can say I-, I don't know how to solve this problem or I made a mistake or um we're about to lose our biggest client or whatever it is that you, someone might be willing or needing to share, you want them to be able to do so. And so if you model the behavior, if you model vulnerability, then your team members are more likely to follow in your shoes, right? You're setting the tone for the type of communication you want to see in the team. Mm -hmm. So if we revisit a previous question, in order to shift leadership mindset and, and the habits to build psychological safety, I guess, what needs to happen? Well, at I the, think the at first, the organizational level, sorry, at the organizational level. Yeah. Um, well, <clears throat> in a perfect world, uh, organ organizations will uh, be able to foster psychological safety from the top down. So it's an initiative brought on by the CEO. You know, the right at the top of the organization, they're going to say, "We want to build a psychologically safe work environment," and that CEO is willing to demonstrate vulnerability and model the behaviors they want to see by encouraging people to speak up, say what's on their mind, have challenging debates and discussions and create um, uh, a system whereby information is freely shared and made actionable, right? So it's not enough to just create a a place for people to vent their frustrations and uh, express their concerns if you're not going to do anything about it. So there needs to be a full... uh, commitment to not just hearing and listening to people, but being able to do something about it. And I think that starts from the top down. Um, So often when we work with organizations, we work with their senior executive team and we, we start, we always start by assessing psychological safety. Well, let's find out what the baseline is, (laughs) where are we at right now? And then what that does is it really opens up a, a conversation. So when we have the results, we put them on the middle of the table and we say, all right, some folks are feeling high degree of psychological safety. Some folks aren't. There's some variability in this team. Let's have a conversation about that. And what are some of the things that we can do to foster more psychological safety? And uh, and so what we love to do is work with senior leadership teams when they're doing, say, quarterly planning or their annual planning, because that's usually when teams come together. So then we incorporate some of the uh, psychological safety into uh, that work because it helps just set the set the tone for the for the planning session, right? So you want to make sure that everybody feels comfortable in that work environment. So we usually start with that, and then the organizations can move into their planning and their discussions about what the 
future goals are. Um, and so that's that's one really great way that I see psychological safety being embedded into organizations. And yet it's not the only way uh, because we've also seen a number of individual leaders or managers that have their own team that want to bring psychological safety and they're not getting say funding from the CEO or the CFO or, or anybody further up the chain of command. And yet they see it as a valuable um, endeavor to pursue on their own within their own team. Remember that weather system that we were talking about, right? So they might be, uh, you know, the city down in Florida, it's got nice weather while everyone's feeling it's like chill. So, um, uh, you know, we certainly encourage folks like that to be able to do their best to advocate for their team and create a psychologically safe work environment. Because um, what that does is it helps establish that, hey, it can be done in one area and then other teams start to look. And ideally, it can it can permeate throughout the organization very organically, right? So it's not necessarily something that HR is advocating for. It's just more, huh, look what they're doing. Hmm. Hmm. I'm going to go learn from them. Uh, Tim seems to be doing something really interesting with his team. He's Everyone seems to be super engaged. Hmm. What's he doing? That kind of thing. Yeah, the, the, the more times they're going in, into, particularly larger companies, it's incredible to see a completely different culture in different departments uh, under different leaders and in different leadership teams. And it's all, it's like, the higher a leader rises in the organization, the more impact they have on their part of the organization. And uh, for better or worse, I've seen some where a leader has risen to the top through toxic means and it creates like dead branches to the tree essentially. <laughs> and, uh, or uh, a, whole, a whole weather system on one side of the map, if we want to use that analogy. And it's interesting to to see how it it translates through different leaders, through employees, and and the results. And over time, it bears out. But I like I've I think of one leader in particular that I had the I won't say pleasure of of working with, but their they, their organization got amazing results but their churn rate was like 60% a year. Like they were just churning through people one after the other, but producing incredible results from the bottom line. But when we, if we take into account all the, the damage and destruction that had been done to the organization through disgruntled employees leaving, going to other companies, taking their, their knowledge and their skills with them, and the the cost of that turnover in the organization was was immense yet the corporate culture at the executive level kept re rewarding that person for producing the financial results and not looking at it from the bigger perspective and what that maybe did to the corporate culture and the reputation of the organization what uh, what's your experience with uh with leaders like that and how how have you maybe turned the corner on some of them yeah yeah that really kind of saddens me when that kind of thing happens and i think it's also important to point out that the bottom line is obviously really important that's what most organizations are there for right it's to produce a, a positive bottom line and what i would 
challenge uh, with this one particular organization is how sustainable is the, those are those results, right? So this particular leader, um, are they going to be sustainable? And and there's not just the uh, bottom line, but there was all of this harm that was produced. And what I see is with it, what, you know, why do we want psychological safety in the first place? Is it just so that we can hold hands and sing Gumbaya? No, right? It's about high performance. That's ultimately what it's all about. And we know that with psychological safety, the correlation is really high, where the teams that have the greatest performance tend to have the highest degree of psychological safety and vice versa. So low teams have low psychological safety. So they're correlated. And so that's the first factor that you want to keep in mind. And then um, as far as when there's what we would call like a, a we would call it an abrasive leader, um, it happens. There are abrasive leaders. And what we find most of the time is that most abrasive leaders are unaware of the impact that they have. And uh, and so the first thing we try to do is shine a light on that. Um, and yet that's not always the case because what we've also seen is some abrasive leaders who uh, feel pride in the work that they're doing saying, well, I make it hot in the kitchen and people leave. I'm doing the organization a favor because those folks don't have what it takes. So we're getting rid of them. Um, and I would say to that, maybe there's some truth to that. And yet I don't know that that's the way I would want to run my organization. And um there's a cost to that. There's a big cost to morale. And uh, I'd say the biggest thing that there's a cost to on that kind of behavior is innovation. So Pretty under side, the yeah. guidance of uh, an, an abrasive leader, it's really hard for teams to innovate and be creative and explore new options, right? Uh, at that point in time, I think everybody just becomes a yes man or yes woman, someone who just takes orders, they do their work, they punch the clock and they leave at the end of the day. And so um, you're not getting, you're getting their time, but that's it. You're getting someone's time, but that's it. I would argue you're not even getting a very efficient use of their time. So their productivity is probably subpar. And uh, certainly when it comes to innovation. And so you might want to, if there are people in your organization that are abrasive, you may want to look at your payroll and look at how efficient is that uh, payroll being used? Because uh, depending on the type of organization, I know for us, payroll is our number one, number one by far line item on the on the expense uh, yeah. report, right? So we need to make sure that we're spending our um, our dollars wisely. And if you're paying someone, say, a six-figure salary, and they're not engaged and they're barely showing up for work, uh, maybe maybe they're there in spirit, in physical form, but they're not there in spirit. And what kind of quality of work are you getting out of those types of folks? I would argue that it's not very good, and maybe in the short term, it's it's uh, you're getting good results, but it's not sustainable in the long term. Yeah, and I I don't think the changes we're talking about are mind-blowing or altering or life or they're life altering but they're not rocket science it's some empathy some looking at things through a different perspective creating an environment where people can speak up and you're not ripping their head off for disagreeing with you and for some leaders that that might be transformational change but i don't think it's that difficult 
what I'm seeing is not as many organizations are rewarding that type of behavior. And I think when it does happen, if I use the example of that one leader that was creating a toxic environment, despite producing results, what results would she have produced if she created a psychologically safe environment and still had high expectations? People, uh, yeah, yeah, I I think that's a good question. And I think you can have both, right? Because uh, uh, having a psychologically safe environment doesn't mean you have low expectations. Not at all. It's about having high expectations and being able to work through any challenges that might be there, yeah. including any sort of interpersonal conflict that might exist. Remember, I told you about the interpersonal responsiveness. We think that's one of the active ingredients for uh, a leader that can foster psychological safety. So um, I, I, I think I would say what you said earlier in a slightly different way, I would say it's simple, but not easy. Um, and there's a quote that a colleague of mine, she put in her master or her PhD um, uh, thesis is that uh, all it takes, it takes many carpenters to build a barn and one jackass to knock it down. So, so uh, psychological safety is, um, while it's like a simple concept, we as human beings are complex. And I, and remember, I was telling you about the definition of psychological safety, right? The belief that um, you can speak up, say what's on your mind without any fear of reprimand. And we all are, I think, raised in different ways to perceive psychological safety differently, right? Like think of a, a classroom teacher in kindergarten with sitting on a chair with a, a handful of kids in front of them. And then if they ask a question, how are those children going to respond? There's going to be some kids at the front, like, oh, oh, pick me, 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 oh, oh, I got an answer. I so want to share something, right? And then there's going to be people sitting at the back who, even if you prompt them, will be hesitant to speak up. So that's part of, I think, our socialization and part of our personalities. We're constantly concerned about how we're showing up and what we're saying and how that affects our reputation. So it, we're basically these reputation management uh, machines. We're constantly worried about our reputation. You can definitely see it on social media, right? We're constantly trying to manage and sculpt our reputation. And that's what's happening in a team. It's very subtle, but we as human beings being social the way we are, uh, we're constantly adjusting how we say things, what we say, should we hold back? Should I not say that? I don't know. Mm, right. So to have free flowing conversation where everybody feels like they can be candid is simple concept, but not necessarily super easy to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. And that is part of leadership too, is getting to know the people on your team, their unique personalities and being able to draw out their unique talents, I guess you would say, despite different personalities. And again, that's something that is not taught in traditional business schools. It's not taught in most leadership programs. But I think when you come down, when it comes down to it, it's just, as you said, empathy, Getting, getting to know people, really engaging with them, being authentic, and, and having great conversations with them. 
Thoughts? I, agreed. Yeah. I learned that lesson, I think, uh, early, early on in my career, or at least some version of that lesson. Um, I was in construction management. So I was uh, a scheduler in on these large construction projects. So what that entailed is coordinating 50 different subtrades. So you have everything from, you know, rebar guys all the way up to windows and exterior closure and fireproofing, et cetera. So um, we had this issue where we needed one of the subtrades to finish their work in, uh, you know, two weeks instead of three. And so we're looking at, well, can we double up some shifts or can we, maybe we can break up their work. So they move from one area to another a little more efficiently, you know, that kind of thing. And, and uh, my, I was talking about it with my boss and he said, well, it's uh, you know, Jim, right? Jim. Yeah. Jim's the, the, the project manager for that particular team. He's like, well, he likes baseball. So why don't you just, you know, bring a case of beer over there and <laughs> chat about baseball and um, make a little bet with them. Bet you can't get that done by next Friday kind of thing. <laughs> bet you a case of beer. Right. And so here we are talking about like potentially multi-million dollar contracts. And at the end of the day, you just have to know the guy or the person uh, appreciates baseball and you're willing to bet a case of beer that they can't get the work done by Friday kind of thing. And I, I remember at the time going, really? Like, really? And yeah, that that's sometimes what you have to do. You just have to get to know the person a little bit and understand their motivators and be able to, uh, you know, challenge them in a, in, in a way that works for them where you say, bet you can't get this done by next Friday. Hmm. Bet you I can. <laughs> okay. Well show me how let's yeah. get it done. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's my thought on that, Tim. Well, and I, I like that. Uh, I'm, I'm a baseball fan too. So, uh, <laughs> I, Although I don't know, uh, don't know if I would be able to get the construction management sites. <laughs> <laughs> um, one uh, one topic that I wanted to touch on, and you mentioned uh, earlier when we were chatting, was executive presence. You know, we, we've we've talked about the mindset of leadership. How do you define executive presence, and how do you see it show up? Yeah, I really struggle with that for a while because I, I would get in our work with coaching, people would say, oh, we want to build executive presence. I'm, what the heck does that mean? I, I mean, I kind of have an idea maybe. Um, so we look at it this way. When engaging with other people, um, we all basically have these little antenna out going, do I know, like, and trust this person? And we use the acronym ETA in our training and in our work. So ETA means expertness, trustworthiness, and A is basically, I don't love the word, they call it attractiveness, basically likability. Um, and so when engaging with individuals or team, you wanna be constantly looking at all three of those. Like, are you coming across as expert? Are you coming across as trustworthy? And are you coming across as likable? And it's important as a leader so I think leaders that have really great executive presence, they know when to lean on one or the other of those three, right? So they know when to come in with a, maybe a heartwarming story that that improves their likability, or they know how to um, really demonstrate that they're trustworthy by saying, okay, well, I'll take care of that. And then they go and take care of that thing, whatever that thing is, or they can really lean on their expertness. What we find is that's usually the easiest for most leaders is that they're, they've achieved a certain level of 
uh, leadership um, success because they're experts and they know their stuff, right? So that one's fairly easy for most to uh, lean on. But then we try to teach folks more about those other two, like how to really build that trust and how to build that likability so people feel like they can, you're so that you're much more approachable. And I think that's um, what I would call executive presence is when you can really lean on those three, depending on the situation. So when there's a crisis, you lean on your expertness. And when um, you just want to build up morale and get everybody excited, then you can work on lean on the other two, whatever is appropriate for the situation. Well, and those last two speak directly to psychological safety as well. If you trust someone, you know, they have, they're there for you. They have your back or your best interests at heart. And if they're likable, you're more likely to approach them and be able to speak your mind to them and trust that they're not going to, you um, I guess hurt you for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And if you think about that abrasive leader, they're probably leaning on the E over and over again. Look, I'm the expert here. Do as I say. I know what I'm doing here. You know, they're they're not leaning on their uh, trustworthiness or or on their likability at all. Mm-hmm. So if we, uh, I guess, uh, look at it from the different perspective. If you're an employee in an untrustworthy environment, what what have you seen employees be able to do to improve their their situation short of leaving? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a really tough question because unfortunately, I think there's far too many employees that find themselves in that exact situation, right? Where they're probably contemplating leaving. And so I would put it this way where uh, communication is a two-way street. And um, sometimes the message you make is not received because of the way that you're presenting it. And so that's the one thing I think you can really lean on and control is if there are concerns or uh, issues that you want to have addressed, then being able to find an ally within the organization that you can go and and approach and say, hey, I'm having issues here or uh, being able to ask for what it is that you need, I think is really critical because so often I think employees feel like they are disempowered and they don't have the ability or a voice to be able to express their concerns. And I think um, if that's the way you feel, I, I, I can't help but think that there's only one solution there, which is to try to get your message across, but delivering it in a way that is receptive by the other person. So maybe you have to really figure out how to craft that message, how to build some, um, maybe you have to collect some data around it. And, and alternatively, like you mentioned, all you can do is leave. So, um, yeah, I think it's just slowly through conversation, trying to build up, uh, uh, a wave of momentum that will support you in whatever whatever it is that you need from that organization. Yeah, and and based on turnover rates these days, uh, a lot of people are leaving. Yeah, it's a big problem for organizations. I think they're really starting to see that. Um, you know, there's headlines around quiet quitting, and uh, yeah. and and think about that for yourself as a manager. If someone quiet quits, you know, someone leaves on you. 
that's that's a concern. You should you should have some inkling, ideally, that someone is going to leave um, if they end up leaving. And and uh, that points me to reminds me of a story uh, when pandemic first struck, and I reached out to a fellow colleague who's a learning and development manager at an organization with I don't know a couple hundred managers, and so in the uncertainty of the pandemic, he just started reaching out to all of his managers and just saying, how's it going? How's your team doing? You know, he was, he was there as an extra uh, voice. And he said the results were fairly bimodal. He was very surprised by this. So he had half of the managers saying, yeah, my team is totally stressed out and I'm stressed out. I don't know what to tell them. I don't know how if their jobs are going to be secure. I have no idea what's going to happen. I don't know if we're going to go back to the office. And then he had another half when he asked them, how's your team doing? They said, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So, so interesting, right? So I think you'd rather, I'd rather for every manager to be the one where you feel stressed because your team is feeling stressed and they're telling you that they're feeling stressed versus the team that doesn't feel any sense of psychological safety and they're not telling you anything. That's because the first person is communicating with their team on a consistent basis. And yeah, and and I know we, even on the coaching side, we see that with a lot of leaders when we talk about what's communication like with your team and lots of leaders aren't having regular one-on-ones with their their direct reports and they see them at team meetings and, but they're not having those real sit down um, conversations to get to know them and to really find out what's going on and uh, everything seems to be surface level and they might interact multiple times in a day but there's never going deeper uh, in the conversation and really getting to the heart of the the challenges and what that person's really feeling and going through yeah yeah i i think you're you're so right there tim and i think what some people are maybe concerned about with reaching out to their team is uh, well, i don't want to be a therapist yeah. and we're not telling you to be a therapist not at all just no. to to show some interest in in your team doesn't mean you have to be some shoulder that they cry on for 45 minutes um if they need help you can there are other resources out there and i would hope that as a leader or manager you would uh, find people resources if they needed it. And often it's just a matter of knowing like, oh, hey, how, how are your kids? How was that track meet this weekend? Or, um, you know, how was the ski trip or whatever, just to really show that you care and are interested in that person. And that makes all the world a difference because the next time they encounter some sort of issue, they're going to say, yeah, okay, this person, I can trust them. So the fact that I made a big mistake here, I can I can let them know. Yeah. And it's all because you said, you know, how's the wife and kids or, <laughs> or, you know, what'd you do on the weekend kind of thing. Yeah. Or, or even taking time to say, Hey, I just wanted to sit down and say like, you know what, that project we did last week or a couple weeks ago, great work. Like I was, I noticed how you did this and a couple of specific things that they did well, or, Hey, I, I, I noticed this and, um, you know, it's not like you to have this happen. Uh, you know, tell me what is everything okay? What's going on? How how can I be of assistance? And 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 really look at the person as a whole and say, I see this, I see this. Let's let's work together. 
Yeah. Yeah. I love how you just dem demonstrated there some great skills. So part of that is just having an open, open dialogue, right? So you weren't judgmental. It was more, Hey, what I'm noticing X, Y, and Z, like what's going on? Um, how can I be of service or how can I help? Or uh, just having an open ended question like that will oftentimes allow people that freedom to be able to really be vulnerable and share and know that um, when they do, they're not, <laughs> they're, it's going to be met with uh, a caring and or gentle hand. One, uh, one thing that, uh, you know, to, before we wrap up here, just to keep it practical is you had mentioned uh, measurable, practicable skills that, uh, that leaders can work on. Can you maybe just recap uh, some of those skills? Yeah. So the one of the skills that we start with is reflecting content and reflecting feeling. So what the, what is that? It's, I think we do it all the time, but we make it really explicit. Here's what the skill is. So reflecting content is when someone says something, you just reflect back to them what they just said, but you make it more concise, right? So oh my goodness, I'm stressed because of this and that. And uh, I'm afraid we're going to lose our biggest client and et cetera, et cetera. So then you would just say, oh, wow, I can tell you're, um, you're struggling with this particular client and you're afraid we might lose them. Did I get that right? So that's it. You're just reflecting content. Mind you, in that case, I also reflected a little bit of feeling. So reflecting feeling is the same sort of thing where someone uh, expresses something and then you you reflect back the emotion that's there. So you might say, oh, wow, I can see you're really excited, maybe even proud of the work you did over the in this last project. Did I get that right? So you're just checking in with them. And oftentimes when you're reflecting both content and or feeling, you're adding a little something to their awareness of what's going on. Because often people will show up as excited or proud or, or frustrated and angry, but they won't, it's not necessarily it's not necessarily named for them. So then when you can say, oh, I can see you're really proud of your work. It's like, yeah, yeah, I am. Or I can see you're really frustrated. Yeah, I guess, well, it's not really frustration. It's actually a little bit more anger. Like I'm I'm angry. Oh, okay. And that doesn't have to be a lengthy process. Uh, often just naming it, reflecting it back to the person allows them to really feel heard and appreciated and understood. So those are the two skills that we almost always start our training with. And then that leads into a much more powerful skill, which is what we call reflecting process. So if you consider like the depths of an ocean, um, reflecting content is at the surface, reflecting feeling is a little bit below the surface. And then reflecting process is like the stuff deep down in the ocean that's causing the, the surface water to, uh, you know, to rumble a little bit. And reflecting process is basically being able to point out to the team what's going on in the team in the moment. So um, you might say something like, well, I can see that we're really stuck here. Doesn't feel like we're going to move forward in this conversation. So I'm wondering if there's a better way that we can address this particular issue. So you see how I'm just, I'm reflecting what's going on in the team. Like I'm, I'm noticing we're really stuck here, or I'm noticing that Two of you seem to be going back and forth with no middle ground. So, so then, and then opening up to a question like, what can we do differently here? Or how can we address this? Or how can we overcome this, this issue? So that's, excuse me, that's called reflecting 
process and is really powerful in a team-based conversation when things really feel stuck or awkward or um, maybe there's some conflict and you don't know what to say or how to resolve it. Well, then you just reflect back what you're noticing. And that's called reflecting process. Makes sense, Tim? Yeah, absolutely. I love it. And, uh, you know, very much a, a coach approach to leadership uh, instead of just solving the problem. You know, a lot of leaders in that situation, you said of the, the reflecting process, if they're, they see conflict or they see their group is stuck, they're like, we'll come in and say, okay, you do this, you do this here, here's a solution, go implement it. And that's often not what's needed. That's right. And um, what that's pointing to is a, we use a four player model. So basically in a conversation, what role will you take on? And often we, as a leader, we want to be the the mover. We want to like move the conversation forward. Right. And what we need to do is be more of a bystander in those situations where we're kind of like the coach up in the grandstands, looking down on the field, right. Being able to reflect what we're seeing on the field, as opposed to being the quarterback who's now calling the next play. See the difference between like wanting to, it's a little bit like you hear the adage in business, you know, are you want to work in your business or on your business? So do you want to work in your team or on your team? And if you're going to work in your team, you're going to be the quarterback. You're going to call the next shot. And if you're going to work on your team, you're just going to reflect and say, huh, I see that we're on the 50 yard line and we're a little bit stuck here. So what should we do? Yeah. Well, Stefan, this has been awesome. And I'm, I know we could talk for a long time about more, uh, so much more. Uh, what's, uh, what's one takeaway you'd love to give to the listeners that they can start to implement in their organization? Yeah. So the first thing I would say, Tim, is this is the simplest. Start with the simplest first step. And the first, simplest first step is to just start to notice psychological safety and start to notice what might be impeding someone from speaking up. So the next time you're in a team meeting, don't need to do anything different. Status quo, maintain the status quo, but just notice what might be causing one person to withhold a little bit of information or just, you know, refrain from speaking up um, and just start to see the dynamics within the team. That's what I would argue is the very first step that you want to start to do. Just bring us some awareness to this idea of psychological safety and maybe not even for others, but notice it for yourself. Noticing what are some of the topics that you feel a little bit challenged to bring up and mention and discuss. Great. That's very helpful. And uh, I, I know lots of leaders are going to be implementing that and think, starting to think differently about it. Now, it. If, if people want to learn more, where can they find you? Yeah. So our uh, website is zarango.com, Z-A-R-A-N-G-O. And uh, if it's cool with you, Tim, what I'd like to offer is for leaders to get their team's psychological safety assessed. It's a very simple assessment. It takes all of three minutes for people to fill out. And um, I, we've got a webpage dedicated to podcast listeners. It's zarango.com forward slash free PSI. And so I invite you as a listener to just go to that webpage, fill out the form, and we'll assess the psychological safety of your team. I, that'd be my gift to you. Um, I'm passionate about teams and leaders being able to foster psychological safety. I see that as the first step. And so uh, please uh, take me up on my invitation to measure the psychological safety of your team, and we'll, we'll get you off to the races. 
Wonderful. I will make sure that those links go in the show notes. And uh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure and I look forward to reconnecting again soon. Yeah. Thank you, Tim. I appreciate the opportunity. That wraps up another episode of the Working Well podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Which guests or topics would you like to see featured on the show? Message me through LinkedIn or on the contact page of timboris.com. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Tim Boris with Fresh Wellness Group and look forward to seeing you on the next episode.